if there are no questions, then we'll dive into our study on election and predestination. So, by way of recap, because I think this is an important doctrine to understand um, properly, and I think often it is not understood properly. Um, in fact, going forward, if I ever discuss this with somebody one-on-one, my starting point is now uniformly to say, hey, before we discuss this issue, can we take a minute and see if I understand where you're coming from? Let me try to lay out your position, and you tell me if I got it correctly. And then can you do the same thing for me? Because I am amazed at how often people really have no understanding of what is being put forward by those who hold to a a predestinarian or Calvinistic or reform into understanding of these issues. So often, they're talking about robots and puppets and and so you can reject what I believe, but please at least understand what I'm putting forward. So let me recap what we're saying. <sighs> Coffee. Okay. I got to sit on the steps. I can't sit on that stool. Okay. So if you flip over this, this handout to page one, I'll just read the three statements. Um, this is what I'm arguing the Bible teaches. One, that natural man, and by natural man I mean Apart from God's grace, apart from God's enabling, man in his sinful, natural state all by himself, on his own strength, left to his own devices. Natural man is unable to desire to submit to God's law or come to Christ. Because man is fallen and as a result loves his sin and hates the righteousness of God that exposes his sinfulness. And I made a big point of saying... And this is where you got to make sure you understand what we're saying. What we're saying is the Bible teaches not that there's an invisible wall, angels as sort of spiritual bouncers holding back the unelect. You're not for you. This isn't for you. Rather, everyone's invited. Jesus says, no one who comes to me will be turned away. But nobody naturally desires it because we're born into this world slaves to sin. We're born into this world corruption, as, as David said, in iniquity was I brought forth. Because we're born, as, as, as the Bible says, the wicked go astray from the womb speaking lies. Jim, Meredith, how old's Judah there? Is he a sinner? No one taught him this, right? It just came naturally? Okay. Indeed. <laughs> what? Well, uh, okay. Um, um, but yes, children are sinners. They're really cute sinners, and they're really weak sinners. So a lot of their sin we think is cute. Like, look at them. He's kicking and screaming and red in the face. He's so cute. No, no, but, but there's an evangelist. Um, what's his name? Um, what? Paul Washer. Yeah, Paul Washer says, um, imagine the little baby when he's throwing a temper tantrum, and we think it's cute, but the only reason it's cute is because they lack force, and they lack um, suppleness and control of their, their extremities. But Paul Washer says, look, you got a little kid in your arm and he sees your watch and he reaches for your watch and you say no and he screams and he reaches for your watch and he pushes his arm back and he gets red in the face and, and, and then he's really kicking and meh. He goes, I submit to you that if that baby had the strength and the faculties of an 18-year-old, he would slay you where you stand to get that watch. It's not a joke. Now, he might regret it 30 seconds later. But when you see the anger and the rage in a little child, when I say, no, you have to go back to bed, and, and Zadok is just furious, I'm just thankful Zadok doesn't have the strength and the abilities of a grown adult. But it's the same in heart, the same issue, right? Um, 
So no, children are, are sinners. Children are sinners. I'll, I'll give you my, uh, my R.C. Sproul, John Calvin quote, and then we'll move on. Um, as many of you may know, the uh, 500, what's the name for that? Is that the Suscatennial? Or... This is the 500th year celebrating John Calvin's birthday about four years ago. And so a lot of Reformed ministries did, um, let's celebrate you know, the, the work in the ministry of John Calvin. And so R.C. Sproul was being interviewed, and, and R.C. Sproul smoked cigarettes and cigars for many years. He's got this really gravelly voice. He's being interviewed, and he gets asked about this John Calvin quote about newborn babies and rats. And so R.C. says, yeah, I really wish, Cal- I really wish Calvin hadn't said that. You know, I, I really appreciated a lot of the things Calvin's written and done, but man, that statement about rats, that was over the line. That was too far. I wish he hadn't done it. And I think people are right for getting upset and on his case about it. Calvin apparently wrote that uh, a newborn babe is as depraved and sinful as a rat, which is just a horrible, horrible slander on rats. A rat runs away from the cat. It runs toward the cheese. It is not at war with its creator. It is not in defiance with its God. But a newborn baby is an unadulterated ball of will, self, and I want. And my R.C. Sproul story. Um, okay. Um, and those of us with children heartily say, amen. Okay. But we love them. We love them. Okay. So, so really... The issue comes down to, can man on his own, in his own natural goodness, can man want God? Is there some part of him that wants God? We're saying no, there isn't. So what prevents man from coming to Christ is not something outside of man, it's man himself. It's precisely because God says, hey, do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. That man can't come. It's, it's, Man is unable to come to Christ the same way that a wolf is unable to eat straw. I mean, it can. It could put the straw in its mouth, it could munch it, and it could swallow it, and it could even get some sustenance from it, but a wolf will starve to death if you put him in a cage with straw. His nature will never raise the thought, hey, let's eat some straw. It just won't happen. Um, likewise, you know, a sheep, you put it in a cage with a steak, it's going to eat the hay. It's your nature coming out. And so we're saying the Bible teaches that as a result of man's sinfulness, he is unable to want Christ, to want to submit to God's law because he has fallen, and as a result, loves his sin and hates the righteousness of God that exposes it. Our one clear passage that makes this, I think, abundantly clear, many passages do, is right below that is John 3, 19 to 20. This is the judgment or this is the conclusion of the Nicodemus encounter. This is the final word. This is the summary. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And we know that everybody does wicked things, so how many people hate the light? Everybody. And doesn't come to the light, lest their deeds be exposed. So unless God does something to change it, Everybody hates the light. Everybody doesn't want to come to the light. It's precisely because you get to do what you want. It's precisely because God doesn't interfere with your will that people run from Christ. Then, point three, so the doctrine of election teaches, it's really built upon the doctrine of the depravity of man, but God in his amazing love and mercy chose to make sure that some would in fact be saved. While God truly and freely calls all men to salvation, ultimately it is only his elect, 
That's just a biblical term, in whom he works, who will repent and believe. And we talked about just how unashamedly bold the New Testament is in regards to that. Just, just read Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That's just pretty unashamedly bold. Um, go, to, um, go, to, go to Paul's greeting in Titus. Go to Titus 1. I want you to imagine the ripples and the stretching that would occur if I got up on Sunday morning at announcement time and greeted the body the way Paul greets Titus in the church at Crete. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hopes of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Um, let me go to another one of his greetings. Um, is it Ephesians that has one of the more bold ones? Hold on. No, it's Peter. Go to Peter. Sorry, Peter. First Peter. Go over a couple of pages. Peter's greetings are just, yeah. Yeah, First Peter 1. Here's how he opens his book. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, exiles of the dispersion, Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, for, for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So you get up on Sunday morning and say, good morning, elect. Welcome to Martinsdale Community Church. That would be biblical. It would tick people off, but it would be biblical. I'm not saying we're going to do that. I just want you to see the boldness and the comfort with which the New Testament authors are willing to use terms like elect and foreknowledge and chose. They, they aren't like ashamed of this and like, well, Sometimes, do you believe in predestination? Well, yes, if you press me, I do. Now they're just like, morning, elect. That's that's what Peter's doing. Okay, so that's what I say the Bible's teaching. Turn the page over. Um, Let's define our terms, because that's always helpful. What does the Bible mean when it speaks of election? Election is an act, an, not and, that D should be stricken. Election is an act of God before time, or before creation, in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen good in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Let me repeat that. Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen good in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. That's what we, so I believe the Bible means when it talks about elect. Those who, the word means chosen or choiced. What, does the, what do we mean when we say election is Unconditional. We talk, because like I said, everybody who's remotely even halfway biblical has to have some doctrine of election. The most Arminian church you can think of has a doctrine of election. Why? Because it's a biblical term that shows up in all the translations. So the $8 trillion question is, what is meant 
by election. That, that's what you got to grapple over. Really, I don't believe in election. Well, it's right there in the text. Really, what we're talking about is what does it mean? So why do we then believe that election is unconditional? Um, what do we mean? When we say election is unconditional, this does not mean that God's decision is arbitrary. It is not random, not without purpose, as if God rolled some dice and you know we came up. God's purposes are his own. He has not revealed them to us. Meaning, God does have purposes. In the wise course of his plan, he has reasons why he has chosen some vessels for honor and some vessels for destruction. There's reasons. He just hasn't told us what they are. We know what they aren't. We know it's not because some of us are better than others. It's not because some of us are smarter than others. If anything, God's chosen the foolish things and the nothings and the, the base things to shame the wise. So unconditional simply means nothing outside of God. His choice is not based on anything outside of him. Specifically, his choice is not based upon, oh, that one looks like a good one. I'm, who's going to choose me? So I'll choose them. And that one looks like they're a good one. Who's going to choose me? I'll choose them. By the way, that's a really weird definition of choose. Did God choose people? Yes, he did. What do you mean? Well, he looked and saw who would choose him, and then he chose them. That's a really weird definition of choice. It would really seem in that situation that the man makes the choice and God ratifies it. God confirms it. It, it seems an odd way of speaking about choosing. Anyway, so why? Give me some passages, Pastor Jeremy. Why do we believe that an election is unconditional? Give me two passages. And then we'll open it up to some complaints and some um, emphasis on this. Romans 9. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it's written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now notice the emphasis here. Though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order so that God's purpose of election might continue. What, what Paul is saying is this account in Genesis happened in order that, with a purpose in mind. Why did God do it this way? He did it this way because he wanted to make it abundantly clear. It's according to his choice, not works. Get that. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. So why would God do such a weird thing as saying, here's two twins in the womb. I choose that one, not that one. Why would God do that? To make it abundantly clear. It's not about one of them is better than the other. It's about God who chooses. In fact, we, we closed last week with somebody referencing um, Exodus 34, right? Was it last week we closed it or the week before? Did we read that last week? The I am God and I mercy my mercy. Did we look at that last week? Mr. Mr. Brewer Sr. brought that up. It must have been the week before that he brought that up. Okay. Look at Ephesians 1, 4 to 5. Yes, sir. Where are you going with this, Al? <laughs> we don't know how far along the pregnancy was. <laughs> no. They hadn't done good or bad, yeah. No, it doesn't say they're not sinners. No, exactly, Jeremy. That's where you got to be careful. He doesn't say that they're innocent and they're sinless. They just haven't done anything. Yes, Seb. 
Right. We, yeah, let me, let, me, let me back this up a step even further. We sin. Oh, hold on, hold on. We sin because we are sinners, not the other way around. We come into this world sinners before we ever actually do our first sin. Okay? We are sinners. If you remember back to December and we talked about um, the, the original sin, the doctrine of original sin. There's a message on our sermon archive. I deal with this um, pretty in-depth over one hour. Go check that out. But basically, we believe that just as one man's righteous deed made the many righteous, so the sin of one man made the many sinners. And because of what Adam did, you and I are declared sinners. We, we are became sinners not when we sinned, but when Adam sinned. So babies, zygotes, are coming to this world sinful before they actually, in fact, sin because they are in Adam. Yes, Jim. Oh, that's, and that's why I'll fully say that the fate of unborn children is something which I think the scriptures strongly suggest what the answer is, but I don't have a schema of judgment or salvation that fits either one. Because even though they're, they're conceived as sinners, the fact that a baby in the womb can die is proof that it's a sinner. Because death only comes through sin. Okay? But every judgment we see, both in Revelation and in Romans 2, is by works, by deeds. In other words, we don't see God saying, you're an Adam, you're judged. It's by what they did. So I'm unaware, God has not revealed a schema of judgment that I could plug in a two-week-old zygote into. However, I'm only aware of salvation by faith in Christ, and I'm equally having a difficult time seeing how a zygote is going to have faith in Christ. So I conclude, God has not definitively revealed to me, how he deals with a two-week-old zygote. That said, I think there's plenty of evidence suggesting he shows mercy. You've got um, the great statement at the end of Jonah, where Jonah is weeping and mourning the death of the little vine, and God says, you get upset about this vine, should I not be compassionate to Nineveh, which has, which has many cattle and over 5,000 who do not know their left hand from their right? Right? God has special compassion for the helpless, for those who are weak. Um, other passages like Job saying it'd be better if he were a miscarriage than if he'd been born. Well, it'd be strange for him to say that if miscarriages always were damned. Now, you could argue, well, Job's just speaking in hyperbole or Job's wrong. But mm. And then you got David, I, he can't come to me, but I can go to him. There's a lot of things that I think heavily point that way. Um, and some people looking at the same evidence are compelled. They think it's conclusive. My, my old pastor, John MacArthur, wrote a book, Safe in the Arms of God. So I would say there's every reason to hope. My reading of those passages leaves me with some, God will do what's right, it's in his hands. Others see the same passages and they say no, but they think it's conclusive. I won't argue with them. I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable being where I'm at. But certainly, here's the point. Babies don't go to heaven because they're sinless. If they do, they have no savior to praise. They deserve to be there. They are not recipients of grace. They, will, they have no Messiah to praise. They, they deserve to be there. They, justice got them there. Not amazing grace. So that's my only point with babies, is whatever, they deserve judgment, even though I'm not aware of any order of judgment that you could plug them into. And yet we see God's heart for the, un, for the weak and the powerless and the impotent, and, and we have all these signs that point towards God showing mercy 
to, to infants and babies. So I, I tend to think he will and does. I just fall short of saying with conclusive evidence he does. Others say the same evidence, and they say, no, it is conclusive, and I'm not going to have a quarrel with them. What we got to do is not argue it wouldn't be fair, it wouldn't be just, because now we're arguing for the salvation of babies on justice. No, they need grace. They don't need justice. None of us want to argue on the basis of justice. We need to argue on the basis of grace. So that good question, good question. Um, any other questions on that? I mean, this is a tough topic. Fair enough. <laughs> what I'm saying, Al, is this. Babies come into the world sinful and sinners even before they sin. Okay. Well, there we go. It was said in jest. Excellent. Excellent. Something in the Proverbs about that. But okay. Um, that was said in jest, Al. Sorry. Okay. Um, okay. Any other questions on this before we move ahead into why this is important? And then we'll deal with objections and questions people have about the doctrine of election. Carol. Elect. Yeah, absolutely. Second Peter one, um, verse ten. But you're looking at specifically ten, right? Okay, let me look up the Greek real fast. Um, here we go. The question is: um, different translations say ESV make your trans- your your salvation sure. Um, let me just verify what is actually said in verse ten. Um, on account of this much more, my brothers, spudasate, hasten, do one's best. Um, salvation, salvation, election, certain. It's the notion of, of confirming. It's not, you're not making it sure like you're tying it up and it's not going to go anywhere. It's making something certain. Um, so our, our bearing fruit proves the genuineness of our salvation. You, you were right in your understanding, Carol. Looking at me. Yes. What Peter's saying to these people is, you say you're a Christian, 
you're going to confirm you're a Christian and therefore elect, not because you have a feeling, but because you're growing as a Christian. The, the surest proof that you're born again and God lives in you is your growth. I lo- the thing I love in this passage is he doesn't set a bar. There's not like you have to be this holy. He says in Second Peter 1, um, I'm looking now at um, verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, it, what direction are you headed in? There's not a bar, how holy, how good. Are, are you pursuing holiness? Are you making any progress? Are you growing? Okay, great, be confident. It's sure you're bearing out the testimony that you are chosen by God from eternity past. And that's, that's, I believe, what he's saying. You confirm your profession of faith. It's James. Show me your faith by your works. The Bible never says, here's how you confirm you have faith. You feel it. You feel faith. You get faithiness, feeling. But most of us, how do you know you believe? Well, I just do. That's not the biblical answer. How do you know you believe? I, I see the evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life as his fruit is being borne out over time. I'm making progress. I, mean, I have my bad days and I have my good days, but you stand back, you see progress, you see growth. That's how you, because you know, according to Jesus, a tree by its fruit. So what type of fruit are you bearing? That's how you confirm. How do you confirm that that's an apple tree? You wait as it starts bearing apples, right? That's how you confirm. If a salesman says, I got here an apple tree, he can confirm that claim as it starts to bear apples, right? That's my understanding. Is that good? You're still looking at me like I'm stepping into a trap. <laughs> nope? Okay. Yes. Right. I fully believe in eternal security but conditional assurance. Eternal security, but conditional assurance. My ability to know whether I'm saved is directly conditional and proportional to my pursuit of holiness, my fighting of sin. And so that you may end up in a situation like David, who says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. He doesn't say restore my salvation. He's not saying I lost it. He's saying, since I killed a man, stole his wife, and have hardened my heart for nine months, I don't know where I'm at. I have no joy in my salvation. I, I'm probably, I mean, I'm guessing, I'm beginning to question, do I even know the Lord? Like, Help, cleanse me, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Um, so, so yeah. So, yes. If you are the Lord's, if you've once been saved, you, you, there's no doubt. But how do I know that? I don't walk around and see people with like invisible L's written on their forehead. I mean, E's for elect, you know. That's why I always thought a charismatic Calvinist prophet would be a terrifying thing. You know, sorry, you're an elect. That would be a bad combo. Um, <laughs> Right? Somebody's walking around, oh, your child, sorry, they're not elect. That would be a frightening, frightening thing. Um, so, okay. Questions. Let's go into why, why study this. Try to get through this sheet so we can have a new sheet. Not next week, because next week we have a big brunch. Week after that, we will return with a new sheet. Whatever comes next. Whatever comes next. I got to go back. I've taught this class in the Tough Men level four or five times. I just got to get my next handout, then I adapt the handouts from Tough Men to this. Um, I believe what we're <laughs> going on to. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll look in my syllabus and pull it out. I just don't, I have it on paper, so I don't have to have it all up here. Okay, why is this important? Why talk about this? And here I'm anticipating the person who's saying, look, this is controversial. People have a hard time with this. People don't always want to hear this. Why spend two, three, four weeks on this? I got five reasons, six reasons, and um, there's plenty more, but I'll just go through six. One, 
anything the Bible teaches is important. But this topic especially receives substantial attention in Scripture, meaning there's whole chapters devoted to this. I mean, how much, how much text is devoted to the virgin birth? A paragraph total, if you combine the various verses? No one's suggesting the virgin birth is an unimportant teaching. There are chapters devoted to this. I mean, all of Romans 9, all of Ephesians 1, the entire book of Habakkuk, um, there's just whole chunks of Scripture dealing with the sovereignty of God. And so all, while all of Scripture is important, this topic receives substantial attention in Scripture. And so when God keeps saying something over and over and over, it's generally good for us to proportionally be saying it and studying it as well. So when you read in Deuteronomy or Ezekiel about the sinfulness of sin, one of the things we should say is not, man, can't God just say it once and be done with it? Apparently God thinks we need to hear this again and again and again and again and again. Because um, we are like our fathers, stubborn and rebellious at heart. Two, because it removes boasting and humbles us before God. The reason why, I've said this before, the reason why the reformers like Luther and Calvin and Bucer and um, Zwingli hammered these issues is not because they just all had a um, morbid fascination with tricky doctrines. It was in their conflict with the Roman Catholic Church because people of that day were much more consistent in their thinking and they understood the implications of things. They understood the doctrine of justification by faith alone hinging on this. You remember from my message on, um, you may remember from my message on, on original sin and the depravity of man that, Calvin, that Luther, in writing with um, a, a rebuttal to Erasmus of Waterdam, said that this issue, the, the depravity of man and the effects of sin, is the linchpin against which Luther said purgatory, indulgences, and the Pope are trifles. And here's why. When you say a thousand people at a rally heard the gospel and 300 came to faith, you say, what made the difference between those 300 and the other 700 ultimately? What was the ultimate decisive factor? You're either going to find the ultimate decisive factor, there can be many factors, but the final and decisive one is either rooted in the people or in God. So you either say the answer ultimately rests in God and his choice, or there was something different about those 300 than those 700. And if you say there's something different, then what you're going to end up saying is either those 300 are smarter um, they understood what an amazing offer the gospel was. Or at least they understood it at least a hair a bit better than the other 700. Or we saw how the love of sin keeps people from Christ. They didn't love their sin quite as much as the other 700 people. Now, either way you cut it, you just got salvation of the smart good people and the damnation of the dumb bad people. And heaven gets filled with the smart good people and hell gets filled with the dumb bad people. And you destroy justification by faith. And we have every reason for boasting because we were good enough and we were smart enough to believe when our neighbor didn't. You get that? That's why the reformers, why Calvin and Luther and those guys made such a big deal out of this because Rome, in defending their doctrine that we are justified not by faith alone but by faith and works, pointed to all of our cooperation with grace and all of the things we have to do and participate and and, and Luther and Calvin come along saying, no, we're dead. We don't cooperate in diddly squat. He, he makes us alive, and we're dead. 
The gospel isn't about God coming along and helping us get saved. It's the gospel is about God coming to dead people and speaking over a valley of dry bones and saying live and, and life being granted. And so it, it's important. This doctrine is important. And, every, and usually when the scripture brings it to bear, it's to remove boasting. It's to remove a grounds for us to feel good about ourselves because we were smart enough, because we figured it out, because we believed and our neighbor didn't. Those stupid bad people. That makes sense? Um, that's why this, these doctrines are so tightly linked to the Protestant Reformation. And it's not just because Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Busser were, were just a bunch of eggheads who thought this was really interesting. They understood it was critical to, to, to justifying just salvation by faith alone. And I want to be clear, I am not saying that everyone who denies this believes in work salvation. I said back then people were far more consistent in what they believed. I think most people today who deny this are just very inconsistent in their thinking. So I'm not saying every Arminian believes in salvation by works. I'm saying every Arminian is probably very inconsistent if you press him on the point. Please don't hear me say, if you reject this, you believe in salvation by works. No, I'm saying if you reject election and predestination, you would have to, to be consistent, you would have to ultimately believe heaven's filled with the smart, good people. Or at least the smarter, better people, comparatively. That makes sense? Okay. Number three, because this gives all glory and honor to God. This is kind of the flip side of two. This gives all glory and honor to God for all of our salvation and not just part or most of it. It gives us more reason to praise God, which is, again, the, 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 the collateral that the passages that bring this up most clearly make it. Praise him because he chose you. Praise him because while you were dead at the right time, Christ died for us. Praise him because he made you alive. Um, he, he provided a total and full salvation for you. Number four, because one's understanding of election will radically affect the way one goes about evangelizing the lost and ordering the church service. I'm going to come back to that one, because that one, we got 10 minutes, I want to get through the others, and I think what will go is, is practically to evangelism, Steve, next week. How, tying all this together, how do, we, how do we share our faith? Tying all this together. So I'll, if we have time, I'll come back to four. If not, we'll just start with four. Let me hit five. Because, and this is odd. One of the first things I'll get from people is when you talk about election predestination is why share your faith? Why evangelize? Can we turn to 2 Timothy 2? I'm going to argue that a firm belief in, evangel- in election and predestination is precisely why we can be encouraged to share our faith and evangelize. At least biblically. 2 Timothy. Chapter 2, verse 10. Paul is a missionary, church-planting evangelist. Paul, why are you willing to endure suffering and imprisonment and shipwrecks and beatings and stonings and mockings? Why on earth would you do that, Paul? Verse 10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, which... We'd be tempted to say, Paul, if they're elect, then their salvation's sure. Kick it. Sit back. They'll get saved somehow. Paul says, no, because I know this can't fail, because I know that there's, there's a body of people out there who will believe, I'm willing to just get beat and tore and cut up 
in this process. That's what Paul said. I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain salvations in Christ. He does not mean that their salvation is in jeopardy, but they're not saved yet. And so Paul says, I endure because I, I want to participate in this. I get to play a role in these people coming to faith. I'll endure everything for that. John MacArthur said, you know, it's, it's one thing to give your life to something, but you want to know the thing you're giving your life to will succeed. Here's a mission that can't fail. It's not there are people out there and they might believe. There's people out there and they will believe. And it motivates evangelism. Right. Yeah. It's sure because God is sovereign, precisely. This is the motivation of John 10. Jesus says this in John 10, uh, 14 to 16. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there'll be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life and take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. So Jesus is saying, there's, there's other sheep out there to get. Remember when, when Paul gets the Macedonian call? The Lord God says, go, I have many people in that town. I'm guessing that's an encouragement to Paul. And then, um, number six, it's supposed to be a comfort for us. Let's close my time. I've got five minutes so I can take a question or two in Romans 8. The doctrine that God chose you and chose me is supposed to be a comfort. Um, it's supposed to comfort us. It's not supposed to make us boast to become arrogant. We're supposed to revel in a love that loved us before creation. Romans eight twenty-eight to 30. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And then he renames that group. So the first time he named that group, it's the group of people who love God. Then he renames it. It's called apposition. For those who are called according to his purpose. So the group who loves God is also the group who's called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is, we sing that song, God will finish what he starts. We sing it's completely done. We have great encouragement because as we, be, as we realize God has saved me, therefore God has chosen me. And if God has saved me and if he's chosen me, according to this passage, he will see me to glory. He will glorify me. I will be glorified. I take great comfort from seeing this unbreakable chain. And once I determine, wow, he saved me, then therefore work backwards. I must have been called by him and I must have been predestined by him and I must have been foreknown by him and working it forward. I'm going to be glorified. I'm going to make it to glory. And that's supposed to be a comfort. And you add all that up and you say, man, if God is for us, who can be against us? If I've got God on my side, if God before time began chose me, it's supposed to be a comfort. So we'll deal with the evangelism next week. We're done with the sheet. Any questions? We've got two and a half minutes. Yes.
Mm. The, the question, you don't lose your salvation, you give it up. Like Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of porridge. If that's true, I'd submit we'd all do that. First off. If, to, it, well, it's, I, would, I would say, ultimately, yeah. There's this great quote. Um, is this John MacArthur again? I don't mean to keep quoting MacArthur. I, I just like the quote. He just says, if you could lose your salvation, you would. If I could lose my salvation, I would. I certainly know. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. got something to boast in. One of the reasons why I love the song we closed with is where does all the credit for us making it to the finish line go to? Does it go to us? He will hold me fast. Let's close with John 10. Let's close with John 10. Let's go to John 10. And I know you put your Bible away. You can just listen to John 10 if you're intent on getting out of here as soon as the bell goes. That's fine. That's fine. I go over on the sermon, but I'll try to end on time here. Try being the operative word. John 10, um, which is where Jesus picks up on that thread of shepherding from Zechariah and Ezekiel. And he says this. Um, let's see. Yeah, starting in verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness to me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. Now stop. Jesus does not say, you're not part of my flock because you don't believe. Notice the cause and effect here. You don't become Jesus' sheep by believing. You don't become a goat by not believing. Why don't they receive his word? They're not part of his flock. Keep going. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will possibly, no, they will never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. The issue of you can give it up, it's not yours to give up. He bought your salvation. He bought you. He's got you in his hands, and he's not giving you up. You're owned, you're bought, you're not a free agent. You're, you're like, here's my salvation, I can give it up. No, you went from one slave master to another master, and that master isn't losing any of his sheep, and he's not giving them up. You're his, it's not yours to give up. That's the part of the problem, I think, is I'm my own. I'm this powerful person, and I'm an autonomous individual, and I have a salvation, and I get it. Like, no, you're not. You're bought with a price, and the one who bought you isn't intending on losing you. I gave them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. You can only lose your salvation if you're stronger than God. That's what Jesus is saying. If you're stronger than God, if you can pry open his hands, then by all means, you can lose your salvation. Um, so that's what I would say in part. Is It's not your salvation to give up. You enjoy it, but it's not yours. You don't own it. The one who owns it is the one who bought it. Fair enough? So the one who bought it is giving you the benefits of it, but it's not yours. Like you have this commodity. I have a salvation, and I'll charge this much to sell it. I mean, that's, now we're back to like medieval, you know, the Faustian bargain thing. Um, it's not yours to sell. Anyway, we are at time. Next week, how does this affect evangelism? I'm glad you asked. Two weeks. Two weeks.